Today's episode of Rates and Barrels is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 85. It is April 9th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Lots of good stuff on this episode. We're going to have finalized Project GOAT standings, several mailbag questions, a, a wide range of topics, uh, some about a possible simulation season where you can draft players for multiple years. But that was a really interesting concept. Uh, Nick Castellanos is the subject of one of those questions, and anything you can imagine is in the mailbag this week. So thank you for a lot of great questions. You know, how are you holding up after uh, running the Project Goat standings into the wee hours of the night? I have to say, man, I was pretty happy. There's a couple pieces like the support beer and this one. I've had to do some data data entry, just kind of, you know, go through and do this, you know, and, and don't think. And it was pretty zen, man. It was, it was, um, it was kind of what I needed. I haven't uh, been as productive as I like this week, and uh, sort of emotionally been low. Energy's been low. Uh, I'm coming into the fourth week uh, of being in this house and dealing with this stress, and uh, you know, it, it's been getting to me. Uh, but just kind of zoning out and typing some numbers. Um, was just about all I could handle at times. <laughs> and so uh, this was a welcome uh, respite from trying to dream up uh, more content, which is, I have to tell you, not super easy right now. No, it's good to try and break up the periods of time in which you have to do that. I found the process of cleaning out the email inbox last night similarly cathartic. Um, mm. Seeing 238 emails in the inbox was taking the very particular parts of me and, and just like challenging me for the last week or so and just to sit down and make sure that we accounted for the entries, that people got the sheet who didn't have it yet, who want it for later. Something about that, as simple as it was, it was it felt like I checked a big thing off the to-do list. So that, that progress definitely uh, felt good. Uh, but we have results, right? We have standings. We do. And we have multiple interesting strategies in the top 10. So it wasn't, uh, there wasn't just one way to skin this cat. Why do people talk about skinning cats? It's such a disgusting thing. Another terrible old timey expression. <laughs> yeah. Why do I know these things, too? Anyway, uh, Kyle Bellback, come on down. <laughs> His team name, COVID-19 Task Force, was the winner of the GOAT Challenge. And he was a saves punter. Uh, other notable things about his, uh, his, his group that uh, I see just looking at the standings is that he was really good at runs and average. Uh, those were his two um, best feet forward when it came to the hitting side. So he was in the top twenty in wins, in the you know in the top uh, sort of ten percent in strikeouts. Managed to be uh, top half in ERA and WHIP, even though he punted saves. And uh, and had a team that was okay at home runs and RBI and really good at runs and average. Uh, so he is the winner by, with 1,479.5 points. <laughs> That's a lot of points. Kyle sent an email with his submission, too, so I, I think it would be appropriate to read it since he won. Uh, it reads as follows. 
Hi, Eno and DVR. I'm done. It's time to send this in. I can't look at it anymore. <laughs> Created over 70 teams and easily spent 20 plus hours on this thing. There it Got is. Got speed to anyone who can beat this squad. Uh, some notes. It absolutely killed me not to use 2007 A-Rod or 2007 Hanley in some form or fashion. I'm using A-Rod's sixth best season, which is agonizing. Couldn't give up 99 Pudge, though, or the other 2000s seasons that I ended up using. Kills me not to use Helton or Bagwell, but I need 97 Walker and 19 Verlander from the Rockies and Astros. The 94 strike limited some potentially historic seasons from Bagwell, Thomas, Griffey, Lofton, Bell, Gwynn, Maddox, and others. And realizing that I could use 83 reigns at second base was a major oh. breakthrough. That's that's the Andy Barron's trick. That's the He used two Andy Barron's tricks, the uh, punting saves and Tim Raines at second base. That was the, the that, I made a sort of oblique reference to that when we were going into this. Yes, and he also wrote, it took me a while to realize that punting saves is the best way to maximize points, in parentheses, at least I think it is. And at least in this run, Kyle, it proved to be. Uh, keep up the great work guys definitely one of my favorite baseball pods to listen to so yeah congrats kyle i mean clearly put the time and work in and i'm sure there were other people who put in almost that that much time maybe even more in some cases and maybe they were within the top 10 yeah um another uh another interesting thing um i'm gonna uh, revert to uh first name last initial uh from here on out um uh, Ryan P with his team name Why Not was second place. He was also a saves punter, um, and uh, also uh, he even scored better uh, than Kyle in runs. Uh, but he was a runs and RBI monster, um, and, and that was his trick on the hitting side. He did not score quite as well uh, as our winner when it came to wins. Um, but did a little better with strikeouts. Uh, so, but his whip, uh, while Kyle had 185 points for whip, um, Ryan had 134, which is what I would have kind of assumed if you had to use uh, pitchers instead of uh, starting pitchers instead of relievers that you would have an ERA and whip discrepancy. But I think what Kyle and Ryan figured out was that if you're using the best starting pitchers of all time you can get seasons that have numbers that look like, you know, the video game reliever numbers, you know. Um, Seasons like Pedro Martinez and, uh, you know, uh, Greg Maddox and uh, the big unit put up. Some of those seasons, the ERA starts with a one. So, you know, if you use those right seasons, the penalty for using a starting pitcher is not that bad. What I see uh, in number four and five is very interesting. Uh, Horatio G with team to be named later is third place. And what he did was he had one closer. Um, Hmm. And uh, that got him really close. He was within two points of second place. uh, And one closer allowed him um to uh to get 30 points on top of the saves punters because there were about 30 there were 34 teams that punted saves that's about one sixth of the total number of entries yeah so one sixth of you punted saves that meant that actually uh, a fair amount of you were splitting the uh the saves number um, and that has some benefits and some drawbacks uh, for for all the the save punters. At some point, um, it becomes useful to have a closer. And I want to mention uh, team eleven, Aaron L, uh, who did not name his team. He had ten saves, and I believe that's the Mark Icorn gambit. Yes, Finkel is Icorn. Um... Not the name of that team, but probably the most popular pun based off of the the name. Uh, he was the guy we kind of were hinting at on our episode on Tuesday who had that really good season in 1986. So he pitched 157 innings, struck out 166 batters, only walked 45, gave eight home runs, and he finished with a 172 ERA and a .955 whip. But yeah, 
We're talking about a guy who had 14 wins and 10 saves in all of those appearances. All 69 of those appearances came out of the bullpen. Just a really bizarre year. I mentioned some um, acknowledgments as far as voting for awards. He was third in Rookie of the Year balloting in the American League and sixth in the Cy Young voting that year. And what he did for Aaron's team that's really interesting is um, since he gave him 10 saves, he kept him out of the very bottom uh, of the saves group. And that, that, that actually gave him, by just giving him 10 saves, even if you had one save, by getting out of that scrum of 34, splitting 17.5 points, what you do is you get a bunch more points. So um, Aaron got 39 points in saves just by having 10 saves. And he had functionally a punt saves team otherwise. So he actually went toe-to-toe with second place in terms of he actually tied second place in wins um, and was competitive with them in Ks as well, although not quite as competitive as the top ones. The top two teams had around 180 to 200 points in strikeouts and uh, Aaron, with his icorn approach, had 148 points in strikeouts. So if you had given him those, those extra 40 points, uh, he would have been in the top three or four. However, he would have lost uh, you know, another 20 points in saves. So there are a few different ways to do this. I also want to mention numbers 9 and 10. Gordon P., some guys remembered, and Jeff G., tug my fingers, uh, came in ninth and 10th, and they did something that I did not think would work at all. They did all relievers. Yeah, that's that's definitely a way of, of shaking things up a lot. And my theory on why you might consider something like that is you've written about this, we've talked about this a bit. Some of the really great starting pitcher seasons and hitter seasons overlap the same year. And maybe you can find years that you don't necessarily need for a hitter by using relievers. And that might open up a totally different pool of bats building that way, aside from the categorical implications of going all reliever. Let me actually look at Jeff's, uh, you know, his, his, his submission here, because, you know, it's, it, it is fun to kind of uh, look at great reliever seasons. They're often, uh, you know, overlooked tug McGraw. Um, and that's a, that's a fun one too, because relievers used to throw more innings in the eighties and the eighties, we talked about being very hard, um, being a tough decade to, to find value. So he had tug McGraw and Raleigh fingers. And those two guys combined, uh, had 170 innings, um, with 11 wins. That's the other point that I was trying to make, which was that, um, your closers will get wins your starting pitchers will not get saves. So that's why while everyone was uh, was sharing the, the, the 34 points at the bottom, uh, no, it's not 34 points, but sharing the, the, the 34 standings, um, you know, at the bottom of saves, uh, these guys, even though they pretty much punted wins, um, got three and four uh, points out of wins. So... Um, they also got one and three points out of K's, but look how much they dominated. Whereas the punt saves guys, because there was 34 of them, they didn't quite get all of the points when it came when it came to strikeouts um, and wins and stuff. You know, the the the, the punt the punt saves person that won had 196 points in wins. Whereas these punt winners, these punt starters, had you know, Jeff had 207 points in saves, 208 points in ERA, and 208 points in WHIP. Remember, 209 is the maximum. Mm-hmm. The winning winning categories in an overall sort of contest sense is huge. It's a lot it of completely, points. Completely, completely flips the script. Uh, so it's it's really interesting. You said that was a, a 12th place entry. Uh, uh, George, uh Jeff is uh, 10th, and Gordon P is 10th is ninth. Okay, so, so two in the top 10 did that. Uh, pretty much punted wins. I, I see looking at Jeff's that he actually had Greg Maddox in 1995. Um, I suppose he wanted to try and get out of the bottom of wins. 
Uh, and Jeff did get four points um, in wins compared to Gordon's three. Um, but Gordon got uh, 207 points in in saves, whereas because Jeff didn't actually use that last reliever, he got 203 points. So um, it looks like we probably we had fewer uh, teams that turned in the all-reliever strategy, but we still had about five or six. Uh, and the best two of those uh, made the top. And again, um, we find that uh, Gordon P, the best uh, reliever, the best reliever strategy guy, had 203 points in runs. Wow. And 194 in average. So it looks like uh, focusing on runs and average was a strong way to, to go about uh, this. Uh, Jeff also had 197 points uh, in runs. And 187 in RBI. So he really focused on runs in RBI. And I believe, I don't know if it was Jeff, somebody wrote that when they did Z-scores to look at the best seasons, they saw that in runs in RBI, the um, the separation, the standard deviation was highest. So you could separate yourself from the pack more relatively compared to the other stats. Um, and maybe that's because runs in RBI are the biggest numbers you put up in any counting stat. They just seem like at the extremes, the numbers can get very far away from what is normally a great season. Yeah. And that's what, I think that's what they were trying to say. It's like, you know, the, what's the Todd Helton year? I think it was 97. I'm going to pull up his page real quick. Not 97, too early for him. 2000, Todd Helton was the 147 RBIs and, yeah. and 138 runs scored in a year where he hit 372 <laughs> with a 463 on base and a 698 slugging percentage. Jesus. What a year. He, he, had, a one, he had 103 walks against 61 strikeouts that season. Oh, yeah. In 697 plate appearances. And he was only fifth in the NL MVP voting that year. He kind of had a short peak, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that. he. I think that's fair. Bunch of injuries at the end, huh? If you look at, if you look from 1998 to 2005. Oh, I want to do this on the game log, dude. I'm gonna go from the beginning of 1998 to the end of 2005. So how many years is that? That would be three, six, eight years. So eight year peak. I'm gonna. I would go to his anyway. Uh, Five thousand plate appearances with fourteen percent walk rate, eleven point five percent strikeout rate, three thirty eight average, four thirty five OBP, six oh nine slugging, forty seven percent better than league average. 265 homers, 908 runs, 901 RBI. That's that's a really good stretch. And then, of course, after that, he hit like, just eyeballing it, 280 with like 10 homers a year for the next seven years. Hmm. 10 to 12. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty pretty harsh fall off. I think otherwise he would have been uh, a Hall of Famer, honestly. Like if he had more just a more graceful uh, denouement, as they say in French. Um, back to the goat challenge. Uh, one fun thing is uh, Jeff's uh, ERA and WHIP, uh, which were uh, he got two hundred nine points in both. So the winning ERA and WHIP, the very best ERA WHIP you can have by doing the all reliever strategy, was a 1.21 ERA and a 0.81 WHIP. <laughs> so, so ridiculous. Yeah, it's pretty pretty nasty when you get to use the best seasons of all time. Uh, there's more in here. I'm going to try and uh, write it all up for Friday. To uh, I'll give you guys the full results. Uh, the uh, the Google Docs, so you can see where you ended up. Uh, but two two hundred and nine uh, entries, and uh, the top ten itself proves that there's not only one way to win this thing. And um, the twist is the twist is to beat it 
again, to beat it once you know the targets and once you know the strategies. Um, and, you know, the, the only question is how we uh, do the collating and, and what sort of rules we put on it. Like, do you have to have had a bracket in before uh, to join in on the twist? Um, because it was, this was a bear. I have to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> all in all, it was a bear. Uh, just sort of hand collating, copying, pasting. Um, it, it took a lot of time, but maybe, maybe all we have is time and we just do this, but that's the twist is now that you know that 34 teams punted saves, um, you know, how do you beat first place? Do you punt saves along with them or do you try the icorn strategy, uh, the one closer strategy? So, um, it basically is, what do you do once you know the targets, once you know, uh, what do you do in year two of this challenge, basically? Um, but congratulations to Kyle and Ryan and Horacio, uh, Corey R, 10 points for Gryffindor uh, in fourth place. Uh, Luke J with Dunster Group in fifth place. Scott Eggerston, Eggs and Woe Bacon, I like that name. Uh, in sixth place, Kellen A with North Dakota's Isolationists in seventh. Matthew M, uh, team name Norway. Um, and then Gordon P and Jeff G, uh, that's the top, that's her top 10 and, uh, congrats to those guys. Uh, top 10 out of 209 is, uh, almost like a co-winner bracket. So really good job guys. And, uh, I'm going to, uh, write this up for you guys and talk about, uh, which t- we didn't need to, to the tiebreaker end, but, but, but just by, uh, gathering those, we can tell you which teams were used the least. Uh, it might be a little bit harder to tell you which players were used the most, but uh, I can tell you a little bit more about the strategies and um, uh, and maybe give you some hints for for what how to do the twist and maybe set up the the rules for the twist. So, uh, but you know, one thing is like you guys all have uh, you guys all have the brackets, and once even now. Even now, now you're hearing this, and you know kind of what the twist is. You can go back to work. <laughs> yep, you can start working on the the best possible lineup, knowing the most likely way to get there. Yeah. And it kind of goes on forever, as um, at least it it goes on for a very long time. If it, if it's not actually forever, unless you could add new seasons as new seasons happen, then it would really go on forever. Yeah, change some rules. Uh, I know some uh, some people have done uh, like a draft version of this. I feel like. Yeah, so we, we had a mailbag question that came in from Oren, and he writes, Our league had an idea for how to replace the season, a draft where you take one season of one hitter and one pitcher from every decade and then simulate. So that's kind of a, a similar concept, but you could you could project goat it where you're just drafting and taking years away from the board and you know, all that and play it out that way, just tabulate it in the spreadsheet. Uh, but he was wondering if we know if there's a game, whether it's OOTP or score sheet or something like that, where you could actually do the draft and then simulate with combinations of old seasons. I don't know of a, of a platform that runs that. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring it up on the pod in case anybody out there has played some variation of one of those games or something that we're not even discussing. And that way they could write in, let us know, yeah, actually, you can do it here because I think a lot of people could enjoy something like that. Yeah, for sure, uh, and, and I think it it doesn't you know it doesn't work on the scale that we were doing, um, but there is that fun aspect of drafting, which is anybody listening to this enjoys the draft. <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I do. I, I I don't know how to. I wouldn't know necessarily how to prepare for that draft. <laughs> I saw an idea uh, kind of mentioned in our chat yesterday. You were asking a question about something, and it was suggested that we draft beers. I thought, oh, what about a beer draft? What about a 24-round, you know, a case beer draft? I don't know what the rules would be, like what, what beers are in the pool, and I don't know how you score a winner, but I was just excited about the idea of, of drafting 24 beers, even though there might be no means to do any of those things that would ordinarily you know be associated with determining a winner and a loser yeah i'm struggling with that myself i'm trying to do a beer bracket and 
you know, how do you determine winners and how do you fill out the bracket? Normally you fill out a bracket and if it reality goes the way you go, you win, that sort of deal. But my idea is to actually use the bracket as votes um, that determine the outcome of the bracket itself. So the, the, the bracket itself that people submit is the vote that determines the bracket, how the bracket looks at the end. <laughs> Does that make sense? So you would give everybody the initial matchups. Everybody would take them independently, fill them out to completion, and then you would take all the completed brackets and then aggregate them into the overall actual results. Yeah. Like, cause, I, cause then you, you have a vote on every, well, you wouldn't have every vote though on every actual matchup. You I would wouldn't just have a lot of I theoretical that, matchups. I think the way that I would do it is basically if you crown uh, a beer as the overall champion, that's worth X amount of points, right? Mm-hmm. So I turn your bracket into points for every, uh, for every uh, beer that you voted for. And then uh, I can leave your bracket away and then it becomes less about the particulars of your bracket. But, you know, I've given each of the beers points based on your bracket. Uh, I go to the next one, give them points, aggregate all the points, and then the points determine a champion. And then I can sort of retroactively fill in the bracket by using uh, point totals to kind of uh, flow through. You know what I mean? Yeah, so is the... The benefit of considering doing it this way would be to shorten up the amount of time compared to running matchups in Twitter polls and having like like what baseball pods is doing uh, at baseball yes. pods on Twitter is running the, the podcast bracket. Which, by the way, if you'd like to participate in that, you should at baseball pods. Chris is the the guy's name who runs it. Uh, I think you and I, you know, this show rates and barrels has a big matchup coming up against the sleeper in the bust um you know a show that you literally used to co-host and uh, friends of our show no less yeah yeah and please i think we're into the next round um and it we're we're up against uh old friends of ours uh at the sleeper in the bus so we're gonna we're gonna need your votes <laughs> honestly it's gonna be a, we, yeah, a tough match up there a great podcast and, and great friends and so there's not going to be any mudslinging, but um, uh, I think the next round is, I think we're into the Sweet 16 or the Elite 8, and we're going to be uh, up against them. So, uh, yeah, we could use our vote. Yeah, the, the thing that's so difficult about it is that uh, the Twitter poll thing is cool, but there's like a lot of simple, single polls, and then you're sort of aggregating all that, and it takes a long time. Maybe Maybe taking time is good. Um, the problem with mine is, um, collecting the brackets in any sort of, uh, uh, efficient manner. Uh, I don't like, it wouldn't be great to kind of have to go and look through everybody's bracket and, and then type in points, you know, for each beer and, and, you know, do it that way, sort of hand collate. There's not even a copy paste action I could do. So, um, somewhere in between the two, and I just think I might've had a revelation, is that um, in essence, I'm asking people uh, to to rank. However, and I could just say, just rank these beers. The problem is that um, I have created matchups based on how uh, beers are alike. You know, so I have like, you know, this is, this is a thing that has both, you know, like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and Bud Light in it. But Bud Light is in the lager bracket, and uh, goes up against, you know, Coors Light and those, uh, whereas Sierra's in the IPA bracket. So uh, I do kind of want to retain the bracket thing and not just have people rank beers. So uh, I'm struggling with how to do this. And if anybody listening is like a whiz with Google Forms or collecting this kind of data, like I could I could use a little help. Um, I could definitely use a little help. And if your recommendation is just to do the uh, the Twitter thing, uh, the Twitter poll thing, then, then just tell me that because I, I, I'm trying to figure this out and trying to make it fun for everybody. Um, and, uh, I've never actually seen anyone try to put Coors Light in the same bracket as Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. So, uh, I think it would be worthwhile. Maybe bring together people that, uh, like craft beer and people that don't care about craft beer, uh, and, uh, see what happens. He's a madman.
He's a madman. <laughs> uh, some other interesting questions that came in in the last, I don't know, fortnight or so, to be completely honest. I was, I was finding mailbag questions at every corner of my email box, so uh, I sincerely apologize for the lengthy delays in getting back to people. Uh, so we have one here. It's about Nick Castellanos, and it reads, We have all this data, but we have nothing to measure attitude. I listened to a discussion about Nick Castellanos, whether his Cubs experience could be maintained in Cincinnati. I'm a Michigan resident and a Tigers fan. It was obvious Castellanos was unhappy, very unhappy, in Detroit. He burned out on the losing and felt defeated by a ballpark where home runs become doubles. He goes to Chicago. Those issues vanish, and look what happened. Cincinnati's a great home ballpark for him. The team is competitive. A huge year for Nick Castellanos would not surprise me one bit. Uh, you know, I think w- one of the things that launched this question into the email box was a profile that Al Melchior and I did on Castellanos on Fantasy Baseball in 15. And the main thing for me with Castellanos is that this is the best home ballpark he's ever played in, by far. I mean, Comerica, even Wrigley, where he went crazy in the second half last season, those are pitcher-friendly environments. And to give him a full season or, well, maybe it doesn't come in 2020, depending on the Arizona plan and everything else, but eventually playing him in Cincinnati for 81 games should give him a path to be maybe a 35 home run guy for at least the early part of that contract. Yeah, um, I think this is a fascinating question. And years ago, I would have laughed it at it and, and said, you know, this is something I don't care about. I care about numbers. I care about ability. Uh, everyone's going to figure out their right approach that works, uh, for them mentally. And, and, but now I, um, when I listen to someone like Ian Khan talk about, uh, the way that he looks at players and the kind of psychological considerations that he makes when he's looking at a prospect, I don't think they're as crazy. Um, I've talked a little bit about how one of my kids has a high motor and the other one doesn't. And, that high motor is must be related to energy and uh, just sort of what's going on in his body, but it also is a little bit about being the second kid and having to fight for everything and having just sort of a fighter's mentality. Um, and, um, you know, that's a sort of a mental thing. And the way it plays out is that uh, he's fairly dominant for a five-year-old when it comes to kind of physical things. Like he's, very physical and very physically active and physically successful. So, no, I think that I think that these things matter. Um, I also think that, like, uh, I think of Francisco Lindor. When Francisco Lindor came up, you know, he hadn't necessarily had the best minor league season the year before. Uh, let me pull this up so I'm not talking on my butt. But I remember this pretty well because somebody said, you know, you know, why why are you doing so much better than major leagues? And let's see here. Uh, let's put the minor leagues in here. Um, the year before he came up, 2015, uh, the, 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 what he'd been doing in AAA, 284, 350, 402. So he had a 402 slugging in AAA for the Indians. Um, he'd hit two homers and 262 plate appearances. Like, it's not that good, you know? But it was his second try at AAA, and even the year before at AAA, he hit 273, 307, 388. So to some, there was a chance that Francisco Lindor wasn't that good. You know? Like, look what he did when he got to the major league. But look what he did when he got to AAA. Like, he's not that good. But when he got to the major leagues, the lowest he's slugged since is 435. And, you know, he's pretty much just lit the world on fire. And... You know, somebody asked him at some point, like, you weren't doing that great in the minor leagues. And he goes, I was bored. There's definitely something to this because Francisco Lindor is one of the best players in baseball. And he spent five years almost in the minor leagues, kind of brought along level to level, like didn't didn't get like skipped over any levels along the way, right? I mean, 122 low A games, 83 at high A, 109 at double A, and 97 at triple A before he got to debut. So not full seasons, but just about full seasons everywhere he played. And I mean, he, he probably knew. He said, you know what? I'm better than everybody on this field. Like, What, what motivates you when you're the best player on the field and you've, you get to a point where you feel like no matter how good you are, 
you're not moving up any faster. The team has decided you're waiting this long to come up because we want you to come up at this time and want to keep you for this long. That could have easily been part of what was going through his mind. It could be easily going through the, going through the minds of a lot of players who are in a similar situation. Yeah, and he was, I mean, he was like 18 and 19 years old in A-ball and they made him do every single A version of A-ball. Um, and in 2012, how old is he? He's 19 years old. In 2012, and a true 19 doesn't turn. Uh, wait, is he 18 then? 2012, he would have been 18 because he, he turned yeah, 19 in November. He turns 19 in November. So as an 18 year old uh, in a ball, he he yeah he had a 102 wrc plus, but he's 18 years old, you know. Uh, and then when he turns 19 in a ball and in double A combined, he has about he's about 25 percent better than league average. Around then, he probably thought, yo, I'm a big leaguer. Yeah, And, and that was 2013, waited. and they made him do 2014 again in double A, 2014 AAA, 2015 start in AAA, and I'm somewhere in 2014, 2015, he's like, yo, come on. That, and you can actually see it. He does double A again in 2014, and he's 10% better than the league average. He's doing well. And then instead of bringing him to the big leagues in 2014, they sent him to AAA for another 38 games, and he's actually 88 WRC+. That's where he was probably pretty disappointed, where he's like, come on. Like, AAA, really? Um, and when he went back to it, he did better, but then he lights the world on fire and doesn't look back. Worst he's been in the major leagues is 9% better than league average. So, um, you know, boredom. I think that, you know, for Nick Castellanos in, in Detroit, like, the team is terrible, the team is asking him to move to first base, which negatively negatively affects his future earnings capacity. Um, and then he says, I don't want to do that because this team is not winning anyway. And, you know, if I play first base, that affects me poorly. And then that got out, like maybe somebody leaked it or something. And then all the Detroit fans are against him and saying he quit on the team. And, you know, from their perspective, I can understand it. But from the player's perspective, now he the fans hate him. He knows the front office is not in love with him. Uh, they can't trade him away uh, for what they want. And so he's just really stuck. And he feels like he just needs to play out the string. And I think that anybody who's who's thinking about their work habits right now in the, in the middle of this crisis knows what it likes to feel like, I'm just going to play out the string because this this stuff is hard. <laughs> yeah. This is not fun. I feel like the world hates me and I just need to get through this. Especially people with young kids at home right now. They're just trying to subsist, man. And so, you know, I would say, yeah, I maybe I'll admit it. My work is not the A that I'd like it to be. And it's because of all this stuff weighing on me. So anybody who's going through this crisis right now, I think, can understand how your work productivity is related to how good you feel. And I think that, you know, you know, not to blow smoke on my own ass or anything, but I think that my work with The Athletic before this was some of my best that I've ever done. And I think that's partially because I think The Athletic is one of the best places I've ever worked. And mm-hmm. in terms of treating their, their employees right, in terms of... Um, you know, just thinking about the employees from top to bottom, I think this is definitely, I would say it's the best place I've worked. So, you know, these things are all related. And that's why, you know, the Seattle Mariners, I really, one of the things I really like about what they're doing is they think about the soft science. And one of the things they'll tell you about what they want to do with their prospects is, and some people will roll their eyes at my wording, but basically give them a safe space. And I know that that is a political word, but what I mean from that is like make them feel when they're talking to their coaches and when they're working, everybody is, is, is rooting for them. Everybody's trying to have them succeed. The, the whole idea of like being traded and being evaluated, that's like something that's done somewhere else in, a, in another room away from the place that they show up to work every day. The way, place they show up to work every day is a place where they should feel safe and valued and uh, that everybody is rooting for them and working to get the most and to, to, to have them be the best they can be. So that, that sort of philosophy changes uh, certain aspects of the coach-player interaction. It makes players feel like these people care about me, you know? And these people care about me and they want the best out of me. I like this place. I want to do the best that I can. Uh, as opposed to 
maybe what Lindor was feeling in 2014, which is, man, they're just trying to suppress my salary. They don't want me to get make as much money as I can. They don't feel like they're in the right part of their win cycle or whatever it is. They don't want the best for me. If they wanted the best for me, I'd be in the show right now. Yeah, and if you look back I mean, off the top of your head, you know, do you remember who played shortstop for the 2014 Indians? I have the answer, so if you don't have a quick answer, I can I can tell you who it is. Oh. Like who was who was blocking him? Who was playing shortstop in Cleveland in 2014? Oh, I think it was a guy they traded for, like a Pirates guy or something. So it was Esdrubal Cabrera. Oh, and... it was the end of Esdrubal Cabrera, who could should not have been playing at short anyway. Right, yeah, right. If everything Francisco Lindor is is supposed to be is a premium defender first, and you know maybe he'll be a good hitter. Yeah, that that was kind of the scouting report on him. Like yeah. no doubts about the glove. Probably going to be a good hit tool guy. No one expects him to have power like he does. That's just an awesome development story that I think merits its own conversation. But for two years, they had his Drupal Cabrera in 2013 to 2014, not really performing as a hitter and being a extremely limited defensive shortstop while Lonnie Chisenhall was playing third base. So like the yeah. left side of their infield was not good. And he was a guy who would have been an immediate defensive upgrade. They could have played Cabrera at third. They could have moved Cabrera around, whatever. They had ways to make that work, and they didn't do it. So, And, and I don't want to – I'm not trying to – I'm not trying to – hate on the indians i understand i understand like i understand the indians feeling about their uh the amount of money they can spend and how they need to work and how they need to get the most out of their players peak windows how they need to uh maybe you can say cynically suppress salaries but they need to like move players in and out at the right moments salary wise you know they still had a Drupal Cabrera and they had Lonnie Chisenhall cheap, right? So they felt like this is uh, this is going to work and then we're going to let Drupal Cabrera go and we're going to plug in Lindor after. That's basically what happened. In 2013, though, just going back, think about where they were in their, their progress towards the team they are right now. They won 92 games in 2013. So they were a good team where that mm-hmm. extra nudge, even could defensively, have, could have been a difference. And in 2014, they only won 85 games. So if, if you go to spring training, yeah. yeah, if you're Lindor and you go to spring training and you're clearly the best defensive shortstop mm-hmm. around, like there's there's no one touching your ability defensively, and you watch as Drupal Cabrera go out there and, and do his thing, and I'm not trying to pick on his Drupal Cabrera either, I'm just but he was the a, fact the, that... he was the Johnny Peralta of his time. Yeah, 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 he was. <laughs> oh, an and Indian. <laughs> and, and that's, again, in the framework of... Even as that, as Drupal Cabrera would look amazing playing in, you know, our softball league or something defensively. He'd get to balls oh, that yeah, no one could get to, right? Ass. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm, again, I'm, this is not about Cabrera. Right. But I think mentally what that does, when you see someone and you are clearly better than them at yeah. the job and you don't get the job, that will bring you down. Like, it doesn't matter if you're a baseball player. It doesn't matter uh, if you sell insurance or you build things it doesn't matter like if someone better than you continually gets something better than you you're just gonna be frustrated by that and And, and, it's gonna impact your performance and it cast down a little bit more along the mariner's side if you if you feel that people in your organization uh don't care about you and in fact are leaking negative things about you i mean that's one of the uh, critiques of the Mets is that you know they use the media to advance narratives. It usually happens on the way out after they trade a guy. You start hearing, "Oh, well, he was this and he was this," and it's kind of trying to explain the move or whatever. Uh, so it's not usually while a player's there. But if you if you have that feeling, if you have that feeling from uh, from your front office that they don't care about you. Uh, they don't. They just see you as a, a piece in the machine, and you're going to be. Tra- oh, here, Oakland Athletics. You know, love the organization for a lot of things they do. They they're really good at a kind of arbitrage and uh, fading prospects for the most part, and trading for established major leaguers that are undervalued. They might be elite at that. But in terms of player development, we've talked about some of their shortcomings. And in terms of creating an environment in the clubhouse, Bob Melvin is pretty good at it. But the organization creates this idea of, oh, yo, I'm here while I'm here, and then I'm going to be gone. You know? No one sticks around. 
Uh, and so, you know, that feeling could, it's, it's not impossible that that feeling has contribu- contributed to late, late year slides and uh, inability to win the playoffs. It's not impossible. There have been worse teams than the athletics teams that have, that have won, that have won it all. Yeah, the you know Royals I mean? four years yeah. ago or five years and what, ago. And what did the Royals do? They came up together. They won all the way through the minor leagues, and their their organization promoted them every time they were they were good and promoted them all the way into major league jobs, and they were best of buds. You know, they really liked each other, and they really they knew each other all the way up. And, you know, that sort of camaraderie led to a really high peak uh, without – maybe some of the brilliance that the A's have. You know, I don't I wouldn't say that the the Royals we had a little discussion about online about the Royals did they do the Super Bullpen, but uh when I broke down what the Yankees did with Cashman, um the the Yankees have maybe like three times the bullpen war of the Royals since uh 2000 began and they had Super Bullpens starting in 2000, um uh, whereas the Royals kind of uh did that for a little bit. So uh, I would say that that was actually a Yankees innovation, the, the Super Bowl pen, um, and uh, especially the modern version of the Super Bowl pen. And uh, the, the Royals, you know, did some things right. I'm not trying to uh, to to denigrate them, but I'm just saying that, like, and, and especially in this way, I'm celebrating them. They're, they they did the right thing with their prospects, right? They brought them all up as soon as they deserved it. They kind of brought them all up, and they were like, "Here, this is our core. This they've been winning everywhere. We're ready to go." Um, even with Alex Gordon, they might have done the right thing. They brought him up. It didn't work out. They sent him back down. They brought him back up again, and he was he was an important part of their of their long term uh, their their winning strategy. So, um, you know, the, there there is something to the psychological aspect. Uh, look at Sonny Gray. Um, you know, there were some changes he made mechanically, and some changes he made in pitch mix, and especially in pitch strategy, pitch location strategy. Uh, from coming from the Yankees, but a big part of why he succeeded was they put him together with his old college coach. They had him go to Vanderbilt and throw. Uh, they and they, uh, they they basically told and gave him an extension and said, "We value you. Uh, we think that you're good, and we're going to make you comfortable." Um, so I don't know that I can, you know, maybe the follow-up question will be, you know, what teams are good at this and what teams are bad, and this might be the hardest thing to to figure out. Um, because you don't know how the coaches are interacting with the players on a daily basis. You don't know how every player feels. Um, and that's, that's why I've, I've actually stayed away from this kind of analysis is because it's really hard to know how someone feels, you know, unless they're very open about it. Yeah. Unless you're going to give someone profile the mood states, uh, frequently and measure it like, right. So that's the original question is how could you measure it? Right. Yeah. You, you could it with very scientific, very detailed, like daily check-ins. The yeah. buy-in that would take from an organization uh-huh. is something that I don't think we're even close to yet. Like that's that's like one more level. Take take the most progressive organizations that handle people really well. Like treating people well in any facet of life is very important. It's it's a fundamental, just right thing to do. I don't think there's an argument against that. And yet in business, somehow. That gets lost, but it's actually it's smart business. Like I, I yeah. think if, if even if you didn't care about people, treating them the right way is good for your bottom line. And I think somehow that gets lost. And I, it, it's so apparent in the way minor leaguers are treated in particular. Like that is that to me is the the biggest proof of ownership not getting it, not realizing that if they treated these people well, they would be much better off, even though it looks like it would hurt the bottom line. It would actually probably help the bottom line in the long run. Yeah. Um, that's something that comes up with the, the minor league stuff. Um, there, the one thing that occurs to me is I did work on a psychology project called the happiness project at Stanford. And one thing we did was we gave people beepers. Uh, it was called, actually that was the beeper study, the beeper study. We gave people beepers and we asked them to record their current state of mind on a one to five sliding scale for like, you know, six or seven different emotions, happy, angry, sad, whatever, you know? And then at the very end, just uh, write a couple sentences about what's happening right now, what you're doing right now, uh, how you feel and what you're planning on doing. So um, 
it is possible. We learned a lot from that. We learned a lot about coping mechanisms. We learned that people were generally got happier as they got older because they had these coping mechanisms. I've talked about this study before. It, it actually, it's possible. And I just don't know how long you, what the scope of the project is. It might be possible in spring training. You've got everybody in the organization there uh, and you've got them there for a month or whatever. And uh, maybe you could create an app, right? And the app pings them and they just have to go on the app, slide one thing, one to five, one thing, one to five, right? And at the very end type in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking a shower and uh, afterwards I'm going to go get drinks. It, you'd, have to, you'd have to convince them that they have to be honest in this and that it won't be used to evaluate them. Right. Um, and to say, oh, this guy goes out too late at night. And so that, that's maybe where the buy-in comes in. But in terms of a project that's doable for a major league organization, that's definitely doable. They absolutely have the resources to do it. And you would learn a lot. You would, you would learn a lot about players that aren't necessarily good at opening up about their yeah. feelings, and it might actually be very helpful You would learn a lot about how... To run an organization that values their players, how to run an organization that makes them feel valued, how to run an organization uh, that uh, that gives them coping strategies. Absolutely. I think that would be a really successful thing. I think it might actually go a long way for injuries, too. I think you are absolutely right about that. We do have to wrap up this episode. I am uh, sharing my recording space with my lovely wife. Oh, and she right. has Sorry. a class about to start. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, if you're enjoying the show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. Thanks to the many of you who've done that. Thank you, of course, to all of you who are supporting us as subscribers to The Athletic. If you don't have a subscription, now is a good time to get in. A 90-day free trial is available. Go to pretty much any article on the site. I think it's theathletic.com slash free 90 days for the direct URL. Um, if you are ready to commit to a subscription, theathletic.com slash rates and barrels will get you 40% off. If you want to email us, rates and barrels at theathletic.com is the way to do that. Spell out and if you go that route. On Twitter, he's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. And be sure to check out supportbeer.com. We talked a lot about that on our last episode. I'm sure we'll talk about it again in the weeks ahead. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.